Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. We are in Daniel 5, and I've got about 12 pages of notes to cover. (laughs) Some of it is historical background. Uh, Some of it is descriptive of Babylon. I'm going to read to you some information about that city, which, if you understand it at all, will blow your mind it was just an incredible place. So, so we got a lot to cover. We'll do some historical background, some info about Babylon, and then, of course, we'll cover the information in the chapter. The chapter is pretty straightforward. It's, it's um, you know, there's no deep doctrinal issues. There's nothing. Um, and of course, you can you can pick apart a chapter as, as deeply and as much as you want, but in a you know a class that's just under three hours long, we don't, we don't have time to go as deeply as I would like, but it's a, it's a fairly straightforward chapter. Belshazzar is a fool, and he's going to demonstrate that, and God's going to respond, <laughs> and Belshazzar is going to wish he hadn't responded. <laughs> um, but once you open that door, it's open. That's what I used to, um, where I used to work, I was a, I was a communications engineer. And uh, I got moved to their, their tier two department, which means the stuff that people, the, the normal engineers can't handle, got brought to me and the group that I'm in. We have to fix it. We are the, the last stop. This is the, you know, the elite team. You, you better fix it because then the manager is going to come and ask you why you didn't fix it. <laughs> and... When you move from the floor where everybody else worked to the room where we worked, it's, it's a small room full of a bunch of angry engineers, <laughs> if I can put it that way. And everybody in there has strong opinions. And so they have a sign on the door when you walk in that says, if you get offended in this room, it stays in this room. <laughs> Because they're really harsh with each other, the way they talk to each other and treat each other. And, um, and so I, I moved back there, and this, this guy comes to my, uh, my, little, my desk, and he says, you know, if, you, if we say something you don't like, are you going to go tell on us? 
And I said, if, you, if I say something you don't like, you're going to go tell on me? <laughs> and they said, okay, no problem. So, so of course, that meant they liked to... It, there, it was me and one other brother from my church. We worked in there together. He was actually the manager of that, of that area. And um, they knew who we were. They knew what we were about. They knew our background. They knew that we were, we were not Christians in name, that we believed what we said and we tried to live it out. And so, of course, they would want to tempt us and come ask questions and play and, you know, and do all these things. And um, this guy, two guys were talking and, and uh, they were talking about Mo- somehow Moses came up. Neither one of them believed the Bible. But one of them's a nice guy. The other one was not. <laughs> he was a jerk. And he liked being that way. He enjoyed it. And so the nice guy said something about Moses. And, and they, they couldn't remember whatever the detail was. I don't remember what it was. And the nice guy turned around and looked at me across the room. And he said, hey, Thomas. And he asked about something. He asked something about Moses in the Bible. And it was a genuine question. I just don't remember what it was exactly. And the guy next to him, you said, he said, you mean the fake mythology? I said, now, if you're going to open that door, I'm going to walk through it. Are you sure you want to open that door? And he said, never mind. I'll go back to work. <laughs> he turned around and went right back to work. And so now that's, that's someone who was hoping he could open his mouth and intimidate somebody and they wouldn't say anything. But I informed him up front, if you open that door, I'm going to walk through it. Okay, now if he feared me and didn't want me to walk through the door that he wanted to open and talk about, what's he going to do when he stands before God? And that, that's the way you need to live life. The Bible says you are supposed to fear the Lord. And so if you want to live on the edge and you want to tempt God and you want to play with the door and, and, and open it and then shut it and, and you, know, you want to keep playing with God, at some point, he's going to walk through that door. And there will be no turning back. Belshazzar made a tragic, stupid mistake. And how, how many actors, movie stars, musicians, millionaires, billionaires... I mean, you go down the list, all these wealthy, famous people, they like to try and tempt God. What they don't realize or, or, or don't care to realize is that God might take them up on their offer one day. And it's going to be horrendous for them. And so Belshazzar serves as an example of that. All right, let's read verses one through four. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords And drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. That was a big mistake. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the God. Now, it's interesting. Look what they praised. The gods of gold, of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Does that sound familiar? That should take your mind right back to Daniel chapter 2. The image that 
Nebuchadnezzar saw was gold, silver, brass, iron. Uh, it didn't have wood, but it went all the way down to the miry clay. So they, they take something that is supposed to serve as a, a warning and a rebuke, and they turn it into their God, and they begin to worship. And he's having a great party. He's got all his lords there, his concubines there, his wives there. Now, that, that'd be interesting to see. His wives and his concubines are all in a party together. <laughs> you know, Lester Olaf used to say, you know, one wife is enough for one man. That's, you, you, you can't handle any more than that. And so now you've got a room full of drunken wives and concubines. How's that going to go? <clears throat> Uh, I guess if you're a king who can put people to death, they, they, they probably drink quietly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to know. But some historical background. Now, I'm, I'm going to do a lot of reading to you today because um, I want to get through chapter 5. And if I get off on side trails and stuff, if I don't use my notes explicitly, we won't get through it all. So historical background. This night, the kingdom will change hands and the head of gold will give way to a lesser kingdom. Which kingdom comes after? Medo-Persia, which is represented by what? What what metal and what part of the body? Yes, very good. Belshazzar appears weak, incompetent, and lascivious. He is wholly given to his lusts and seeks to please himself. Pursuits of this sort require the individual to go deeper into sinful perversion to satisfy. Right, so if, if your goal is pleasure, whatever pleases you now, if, if that's your goal, if that's, that's the purpose of your life is to experience that pleasure, well, at a certain point, you're going to become numb to that pleasure. It's not going to be enough. So you're going to have to go further. And then once you go further and, and your, your, um, your, your senses are excited again, well, that's only going to last for so long. And then you got to go further. This is how you become a drug addict. They, they, they take a drug, say, for example, heroin. All right, well, the first time, man, it's, it's a charge. It's exciting. It feels good. You see things. You, you, it's, just, it's, it's an unbelievable feeling to them. They get this incredible rush out of it. Well, if you take the same amount over a certain period of time, it's, no, it's not effective anymore. So then they have to take more. And then it's not effective anymore. So then they have to take more. And they have to take more. And they have to take more. And the next thing you know, they're strung out on the streets. They've lost everything. They've destroyed their relationships. They, they've ruined their lives chasing pleasure. It felt good, so I kept doing it. And when it was no longer feeling good, I had to increase what I was doing, and it just takes you further. It's the same with alcohol. It's the same with sexual perversion. All of that. If you look at pornography, well, at a certain point in time, whatever you're looking at is not going to be enough anymore. You're going to need to see something more extreme. And then when that's not enough anymore, you need to see something more extreme, and then more extreme, and then... You wake up one day involved in things you, had, you, you never thought you could be part of. And so you want to be very careful. That's why it's so good. 
That's why it's so important to discipline your body. Pleasure is not all it's cracked up to be. Everybody likes a moment of pleasure. That's why I sit at home, study, and don't do anything. (laughs) No pleasure for anybody. (laughs) It's just, you, you have to take it in strides. You have to be very disciplined. And once you realize you're enjoying this too much, it's probably good to back off and go do something else. Because that, that's where even, even something good becomes a problem. Pleasure is not, it's not a, a goal in life. If it is, you're going to find yourself in serious trouble. If it is, I suggest you dump that goal and get rid of it. Learn to live, learn to be content in whatsoever state you are in. When you have good times, times of pleasure and happiness and joy, praise the Lord. When you're having bad times, don't don't collapse under the difficulty and say, I just want to go back to the pleasure because there's plenty to learn. There's plenty. uh, There's parts of your character that need to be built through the difficult times. I already told you, I don't want difficult times. I like when things are good. (laughs) Just leave me alone. (laughs) But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And as much as I hate the idea, something is coming. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a fallen world. Something is coming. I don't know when. I don't know where. I don't know how. I don't know who. But it's coming. I don't want it. But it's coming. So the, the sooner you prepare yourself and you realize that life is not about pleasure. In fact, pleasure is so deceitful because you convince yourself that if you're in a state of pleasure, you must be doing something good or something right. And you may not be. You might be involved in something that's very bad, or maybe it's just bad for you. There may be nothing morally wrong with it, but it just may not be good for you. If it keeps you away from your responsibilities, or if it takes you away from things you should be doing, get rid of it. Learn to be disciplined. And if you're disciplined, you look out for those things, and you, and you try and mitigate them. Have fun. Enjoy life. But that's not, that's not, that should not be your life's goal. Because having fun and, and enjoyment can get you way off track and, and you'll use it as justification for relieving you of your personal responsibilities. And if you get rid of your personal responsibilities are like a, a ball of snow. When you don't maintain them, they start rolling down the hill. And the, the, the more you don't maintain them, it just keeps rolling down the hill. Have you ever seen a snowball rolling down a hill? What happens? It collects more snow and it gets bigger and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, until eventually it collides into you and knocks you down the hill. Right, so if you, you don't take care of your responsibilities, one day they're going to they're gonna come knocking on your door. And, and it's instead of the one or two that you didn't want to take care of, you're going to have a whole mess of problems that are the outworking of not maintaining the most basic aspects of your responsibilities. Don't be that. Here you have the greatest empire in, in literally possibly the greatest city, the most beautiful, the most extravagant city ever made. And they're going to lose it all tonight because of drunkenness and, and foolishness. And the drunkenness and foolishness wasn't enough. I've got all my lords here. Now I'm going to, I'm going to read to you about this party. It apparently was historically one of the greatest banquets ever put on. There are some historical information that says whenever it was written, 
that there has never been another party like this one. That's how grand, that's how vast it was. And it still wasn't enough. Bring in the vessels from the house of God. It's not enough to do what we're doing. Bring those in here. We need to, we need to, it needs to be a little bit more edgy. We need to go a little further out there. So bring in those vessels and let's do that also. Well, as long as you are having your banquet party and, and, and your, 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 your drunkenness and your sexual perversion and all the things that are going on in there, God left you alone. But when you brought something holy into it, you called God and he answered. And the answer didn't go your way. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. During his reign, he was co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. All right, so you remember how Nebuchadnezzar was co-regent with Nabopolassar for a while. Everybody remember that from the beginning of class? Well, he, he is, this is the father and this is the son. And the father is out fighting. He's out on military campaigns. Belshazzar was left in charge of Babylon, the, the, the city at least. And so the two of them are ruling together. That's why when Daniel is promoted in chapter 5, what, what, is he, what level of ruler is he promoted to? Third in the kingdom. So he promises, he makes all these promises to whoever can, can give the dream. And so Daniel is made third ruler. Now, a lot of people, they, they, they say, you know, how, how could he be third ruler if Belshazzar is king? Well, because there was another ruler. I mean, it's not that hard. When you hate the Bible, a simple idea like this becomes a contradiction. Oh, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. It's very clear. It's exactly like when Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar were ruling together. There were two kings. There wasn't just one single king. There were two monarchs. Even when Cyrus is ruling and reigning, the historical data says that Cyrus took Babylon and then gave it to his uncle Darius. Now, the historical information about the Persian kings is very confusing. Um, it makes no sense whatsoever. And so even that is a, is a guess. I don't, I don't think the data on that or the information on that is very clear. When you try and look at the historical documentation about the Persian kings, it's, it's, it's unbelievably unclear. <laughs> so I just stick with whatever the Bible says, and the historical data can catch up someday, maybe, if they find some, some documents and are able to make sense of it. Um, so... This is why Daniel was made third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar's kingdom is taken by Darius the Mede. The records of the names of the Persian kings are unbelievably ambiguous. If you try and make sense of them using the existing records, you'll leave more confused than when you started. <laughs> the more I try and read about it, the, you know, it, it just it, it makes no sense. And then the the the, the incredible thing is, is the commentators and the historians alike will tell you who each of these kings are in the Bible. And then after telling you all that, they'll say, but we really don't know, which is just what we think. But you just made it sound like that you, you had all this. Why did you have me read this whole book to get to the end to find out you don't have a clue what you're talking about? Why didn't you say that in the beginning Then I could have thrown the book away and just stuck with the Bible? And so not that they would have found something contradictory to the Bible, but it can, 
it, some of the historical information can help add light to, to what the Bible has given us. And, and so sometimes it's complementary, and sometimes it's not. And with the Persian kings, it's, it's a mess. Uh, therefore, I depend solely on the, on the biblical narrative. If and, when, uh, if and when dependable discoveries are made, I will revisit this idea. But for now, I take Darius to be the same person in Daniel, Haggai, and Ezra. And I have many reasons for this. We will review them if we have time. So when we go through chapter 6, if we have the time, I hope to go through the relationship that Darius had with the Jews over an extended period of time. Um, and, and why Darius was so favorable to the Jews. Now, we know Cyrus was because essentially God told him to. <laughs> um, he said, God told me to send you back so, and to fund it so that you can rebuild the temple. Uh, but Darius, who came after him, and this is the other thing. So you have, you have Cyrus fr- from Ezra to Zechariah. All right, there's several books from Ezra to Zechariah that deal with Judah and their captivity, either going into captivity or released from captivity and back in the promised land. Um, so from Ezra to Zechariah, uh, you have Cyrus, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, and then Darius. All right, now the time period from when Cyrus gave his decree to go back and rebuild until you get to Haggai, which is the second year of the reign of Darius, is about 15 years. So either they went through one, two, three, four kings in 15 years, which is possible, or these guys were reigning at the same time. Same Cyrus in 2 Chronicles, same Cyrus in Isaiah 44, same Cyrus in Isaiah 45, same Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1. Yes, it's the same Cyrus. Same Cyrus in Daniel, the end of Daniel chapter 1, what it says that Daniel lived all the way to Cyrus, king of Persia. All right, that's why, so Daniel was about 20 years old, 16 to 20, when he was taken captive and this is, this is when the captivity happened by Nebuchadnezzar until Cyrus is about 70 years. So by the time he gets to Cyrus, he's in his late 80s or early 90s. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, so my point here, though, is that either you went through... All four of these kings in 15 years, which again is possible. Uh, we're going to read in a minute about, you know, Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son takes over. He's immediately killed and another son takes over. He's immediately killed and another son takes over. And so it's possible to go through that many kings in a short period of time. But there's documentation of that with the Babylonian kings. There's not a lot of clear documentation with the Persian kings. And so when I read what's in the Bible, what it looks to me is like, it's like this. Cyrus is the head. He's the king. He's over everybody else. Remember, they, they have a massive empire that you can't reign over by yourself. It's not possible. So what I think he did was you had Cyrus, who's the king, and then you had other kings under him. All right, and that's where these guys 
would come into play. That's what it looks like when you study it in the Bible. But there's no way for me to say definitively, this is so. There's no way for them to say definitively, you know, the, the, the counter to this is they start naming you know, they give you a name for who this was. They say that Cyrus, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, and Darius were titles and not names. And so they start telling you that Darius was actually this king or this king. And, and, and after they go through and tell you which king they think it was, you know, it was Cambyses or it was, you know, they, they start naming all these kings. And then they say, but we don't know. <laughs> Why don't you just stick to the fact you don't know? <laughs> that, that makes more sense to me. All right, so that, that's my idea of, I, I believe this is possibly the structure that Cyrus, it makes perfect sense in, in, in uh, the book of Daniel, because God said that Darius took the kingdom. Well, history says that Cyrus took the kingdom and gave it to Darius. Well, that would mean that he was the head and he decided Darius, you go take, you go take, you're, you're in charge of the Chaldeans. I'm putting you in charge of Babylon. You're the king of the Chaldeans. Does that make sense? Some of you are looking puzzled. So did I lose anybody? Or are you, everybody got it? All right, good. All right, interestingly, as noted, the Lord had some special concern and purpose for Nebuchadnezzar, but he did not give Belshazzar the same opportunities. Belshazzar is a clear illustration of the sinful rebellion inherent in the Gentiles. It was not enough for him to have a party with women and alcohol. He had to take it further and defile the vessels of the house of God. As long as Nebuchadnezzar and his party, as long as his, as long as Nebuchadnezzar and his party went on without tempting God, it seems the Lord left him to his devices. But as soon as he decided to involve the vessels of God, The Lord responded, many heathen over the years chose to tempt God, and sometimes the Lord took them up on their offer. It never ends well. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That is a repeated lesson in the book of Daniel. Don't toy with God. You might get away with it for now, or he might show up and deal with you. And if he does, it's going to be embarrassing. You might end up out back on your hands and knees eating grass and acting like a wild animal. Um, Or you might be put to death. (laughs) You, You just, you don't know, don't toy with God. You are supposed to fear him. And we have a, our, the modern idea of God is he's so gracious and so loving. He would never do anything. Are you kidding me? You see what he did to his own son for your sin? What do you think he'll do to you? So he is loving. He loved you so much. He sacrificed his son in your place. That doesn't mean you you get to escape consequences from your foolish choices. That means you should be more heightened. You should be more aware of your choices and make better choices. if, it, if, it doesn't, if, it, if he doesn't deal with it in your lifetime, you still have to stand before him and answer for it. Nobody's getting away with anything. Now, we like to see the justice immediately. Like, Lord, could you please strike that man down with a bolt of lightning? <laughs> like right now, so I can see it and feel so good when you do it. <laughs> well, he may or may not. 
Probably not. But whatever that man did, he's going to answer for it. Whatever you did, you're going to answer for it. Whatever I've done, I'm going to stand before God. The books will be opened and I will be held accountable. Now, what that means for a Christian, it looks like the accountability is loss of reward. Not not you know, they don't take you out back and beat you or or, you know, they don't throw you through the fire. They just throw your works through the fire. Um, but that's still going to be a you, sh- you still shouldn't take make light of that day. As far as I as far as it looks like everybody's going to be standing there. Oh, here's Thomas's works. Let's put it through the fire. Can we can you put them outside while we do this? <laughs> I mean, I'm, they think I did something and I would like, you know, I don't want them to see what I actually did. <laughs> and so it's not a day you should take lightly. Um, it's, it's still going to be a a gut wrenching moment. You think you think about a time when when you're put on the spot and you're held accountable for something that you claimed you did. And, and, and the pressure that comes down on you as you're examined and, and people look at what you actually did and determine, did you do what you say you did or not? And that's with sinful men looking into you. What's it going to be like when God says, OK, let's see what you did with the Christian life that I gave you. And he's sitting on that throne and his face is all lit up and fire coming out of his eyes and his mouth. And, you know, it's not you're not dealing with, you know, the lovely lamb of God who's eating fish on the side of the Sea of Galilee. You're dealing with the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's judgment time. And so as Christians, you don't want to toy with God as a lost person. You definitely don't want to toy with God. Now, the blessing for us is it says, you know, our our. Our, our works will pass through the fire, but we'll be saved. <laughs> that means the outworking could be bad enough that you should be put to death. <laughs> but the Lord says, no, you're washing the blood of my son. I'm going to save you. That's not, you know, this, this judgment is not to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. It's to determine, it, it, it's, it's a real world reckoning. What did you do? I saved your soul. I blessed you. I gave you the word of God. I've given you everything you need. What did you do with it? Well, we're about to find out. I mean, that terrifies me. I like to think I work hard. I like to think that I'm trying. I like to think that I'm putting in good effort and and trying to help others put in good effort, encouraging others and all of that. And I hope all that weighs out well in the end. But that's going to be a terrifying day. And it shouldn't be taken lightly. And it should motivate you. You should fear God. You should fear him. And and it's it's frustrating because when I say that to modern Christians, they've heard so many times, well, what that means is you shouldn't be scared of God. Yes, you should. You should be terrified. The word fear didn't lose its meaning when God said it. And he said it multiple times. He said, you want to depart from evil? Fear me. You want wisdom? Fear me. You want knowledge? Fear me. And until you fear me, you don't have access to those things. 
All right, as the Lord progresses in the word of God in dealing with nations, he gives dominion to Gentile powers. The Lord notes that Nebuchadnezzar was his servant, but the Gentile kings failed to reverence God. Nebuchadnezzar was given repeated opportunities to repent, and to some extent he did, though it is not clear that he was fully converted. His son that followed him seems to have no reverence for the Lord whatsoever. And it does not appear the Lord tried to humble him as he did Nebuchadnezzar. Thus the Gentile kings reveled in their power, but they utterly failed to act as the Lord's representatives on earth. That was the purpose. It was not only to to punish Judah and to deal with Judah. But the the secondary outworking of this is that these kings were supposed to be his representatives on earth. And I mean, the Lord said openly of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, they are my servants. And they failed. They let the power, they let the status go to their head. And when you when we read, we're about to read about Babylon. If you saw what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing and you were in charge of it, you you might be tempted to say, (laughs) Look what I did. Look at how great this is. Therefore, look at how great I am. And that's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is, look what God has done for us. Look what God gave me. Look at, look at what exists because of God. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. Nebuchadnezzar could not accomplish this on his own. It, 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 God said, I'm going to make every nation bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And he did that. And Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I did. (laughs) That's the wrong way to approach it. Historically, around the time period of Daniel chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians made an alliance that combined the two nations. Cyrus was king of Persia, and his uncle, Siaxares, some good names, Siaxares. Ares. Is that an A or an E? I don't remember. Uh, A. Yeah, so that's how you spell it. He was king of the Medes. When the two joined together, they created a powerful nation that swept through their enemies rapidly. The Lord used Babylon as a chastening rod against Judah, and now he would use the Medes and the Persians as a chastening rod against Babylon. In every case, when it came to Assyria, when it came to Babylon, when it came to, to even to um, Persia, when God used a Gentile nation to punish Israel, he then in turn came back around and punished the Gentile nation for bothering Israel. <laughs> now, to some extent, the Lord is, is using their desire to do that to accomplish a secondary desire. His goal was to use them as a rod against Judah and against Israel. But then God punishes the, the Gentile nations because they wanted to do that. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like God just planted the idea in their head unnecessarily. He said they wanted to do it, so I'm going to use them. Then he used them, and then he punished them for doing it. <laughs> All right, Babylon. Now, this, is, this is Babylon. Listen to this. At this time, Babylon was the most incredible city in the world. One could argue there has been no city like it since. 
But like most major cities, it was devoted to every sinful vice one could imagine. Babylon is known as the birthplace of much of the world's false religious tendencies. Many of the pagan rituals practiced around the world, and unfortunately, many of the pagan rituals adopted by Christians came from Babylon. Beginning from the days of Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, Babylon is the headquarters of dark paganism. So it ends up being the... um, it ends up being, you know, it's, it might be giving it too much credit to say that they started many of the false religions. But most of the world's false religions and aspects of different false religions can all be traced back to Babylon and the plain of Shinar. This is almost one, almost 100% completely responsible for, for all the false religion and paganism that permeates the world today. And when you start tracing different uh, you know, false religions and religious holidays and you know, I mean, there's an entire list of them. When you start tracing the different details of them, the parts of them, or just their, their history as a whole... Eventually, it's going to take you back to Babylon almost every time. There are a few religions that exist that are just completely new and, and did not exist as part of something that previously existed. Most of them came from Babylon. Turn to Genesis chapter 10. We'll look at a few passages along the way. Genesis 10, and we'll read verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. And we've read them before, but, but we need to see it again in this context. Verse 8, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and, beginning, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of... Shinar. Babylon was founded by Nimrod. And this was his, it was founded about 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. And Nimrod is, is a grandson of Noah and a descendant of Ham. All right, so in, in this plane, Babel is founded by Nimrod. Son of Ham and grandson of Noah. Look at uh, Genesis 10, verse 11. We're going to tie two things together here. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kela and reason between Nineveh and Kela, the same as a great city. Look at verse 22. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. So Asher is a descendant of Shem. And so over here you have um, Nineveh, which became, so this became the capital of Babylon, you know, or, or Babylon and, and Babel are connected. 
Well, Nineveh became the capital of Assyria. And it was started by Asher, who was a son of Shem. The Assyrians, Asher, the son of Shem, founded the city of Nineveh, which became the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians dominated the Chaldeans who lived in Babylonia. Babylon was the capital of Babylonia. For centuries, Babylon lived under the control of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who reigned from Nineveh. All right, so when this city is created, it becomes powerful quickly, and it takes Babylon into subjection. So Assyria is, is for centuries, is in control of Babylon and the plain of Shinar. All right, so that this, this, this whole region is going to encompass the Medes who were subject to Nineveh and the Persians who were all under domination by Asher and his city. Look at 2 Kings 19, and we'll read, we're going to read quite a bit. We'll read um, more than half the chapter. Look at, we'll read verses 16 through 37. Actually, let's go back to verse 14, 14 through 37. And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, the God, even thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear, open, Lord, thine eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which, which hath sent him to approach the living God. Now, do you see that? He sent a letter to who? To Hezekiah, king of Judah. And who did Hezekiah say he wrote a letter to? <laughs> to the living God. You, you, you got to be careful what you're doing and who you're approaching and, and how you deal with God's people. Because God might take it and say, no, you're doing that to me. That's what happens at the judgment of nations. He said, you, you never fed me. You didn't visit me in prison. You didn't give me clothes. And they're like, what did we, what did we do? You know, when did we not do all that? He said, well, you didn't do it to them, so you didn't do it to me. So you just, just got to be careful. Um, verse 17, of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations of their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. And they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, that which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. <laughs> you know, that was the day he was praising the Lord. <laughs> Probably jumping for joy. I wouldn't care if I looked stupid. You better jump and joy. You better praise God with me <laughs> because he's, he's going to save us. Verse 21. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of, of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. 
The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. By, by thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord. When you sent those messengers to, to Judah, it was me you did this to. And I said, with the multitude of thy chariots, I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall tree cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the lodgings of his borders, and into the forest of his car, uh, Carmel. And have di- I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet I have dried up all the rivers of besieged places. So he's just running right through one nation after another, and there's nothing they can do about it. Well, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians were one of them. Verse 25, Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now, now have I brought it to pass that, that thou shouldest be to lay waste fenced cities into, into ruined, ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power, they were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as green herb, as the grass on the housetops, and as corn blasted before it, before it be grown up. But I know, that, I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult is come up into, thine, into mine ears, therefore I will put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. And this, this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall ye yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, shall do this. Verse 32. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. (laughs) Verse 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, got the message and departed. And went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of uh, Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Shirezer, his sons, sounds like a good family, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Now what's interesting is, so the Lord stopped him from taking Judah, did not allow him to take Judah. But sometime later, he takes, Esarhaddon takes Israel, the northern kingdom. And Esarhaddon moves people into both Israel and Judah 
once everyone is taken, pe- people from those two, those from, from Assyria move into those two camps and, and they stay there and they intermingle there. They even contact, they even ask God in Israel, they ask God, why do our people keep dying? And he said, because you can't live the way you're living in my land. He said, go back to Assyria, find the Levites, bring them back to the land and they'll teach you how to live properly in my land. <laughs> so they went back, found the Levites, brought them back into Israel and let them teach them how to live in the land. And so through that, you begin to have this intermingling of people. And guess who it produces? The Samaritans. So sometime later, you have the Samaritans who are, who are a result of this intermingling between the Jews and, and the people from Esau Haddon who come in. And, and that's all laid out in, in, in Ezra and all of that. And not part of what we're talking about now. But what I want you to see is... Sennacherib reigning from Nineveh, and he's just sweeping through whatever country he wants. Nothing is stopping him until he comes knocking on Judah's door. And God, God was not ready for Judah to go into captivity. So he kills 185,000 people of, <laughs> in Sennacherib's army. And Sennacherib says, maybe we should go home. <laughs> and he goes home and his sons kill him, which is always a good thing. Now, Later, this guy, who wants to try to say it? That's pretty good. Siaxeres is going to be the, the best I can do. If you heard somebody who spoke his language say it, they would probably be laughing at us. So, but Brother Jane, my pastor always says, when you come to these names... Just pick a way to say it and say it like you know what you're talking about. And people will say, oh, that's how you say that. <laughs> they'll, they'll think, oh, man, he said it so confidently. Surely he knows what he's talking about. Uh, anyway, so he was a Mede and he was the uncle of Cyrus, the king. He overthrew Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Together they, they overthrew him. Um, Seaxerez... The Mede accomplished this by forming an alliance with Nabopolassar. Who was that? Sort of. Nabopolassar was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. That was close. But he was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going all the way back. I'm sure all that history we covered in the beginning, I'm sure you all remember it, right? Right? Because there's a quiz on it tonight. <laughs> Nabopolassar? Same as it was last time. N-A-B-O-P-O-L-A-S-S-A-R. Nabopolassar. All right, Nabopolassar was succeeded by, on the throne by his son, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt Babylon and made it into a grand city. Now listen to this. I might try to draw some of this to make sure we can get the gravity of this uh, because it's incredible. And it's even more incredible when you think about when you think about what we read about this city and it was accomplished all the way back in the days of these kings, which is, I mean, that's it. 
People often look at the pyramids and they, and they marvel over them and they say, how did they do this? Well, what, what they did with the pyramids is nothing compared to what Babylon did. It's just that the pyramids still exist. All right, so let me draw this square and we'll, maybe we'll fill in some blanks as we go. Later, um, all right, so, so Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt Babylon and made it into a grand city. It was built in an exact square. So the this, this city was, an, it was a perfect square. It would be so nice if people did this today. <laughs> if, if, you know, governors and mayors would just make sense of the design of their city. <laughs> but they don't exactly have the power that Nebuchadnezzar had to say, either do it, do it the way I want or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, now, each side of the city was 15 miles long. All right, so you had 15 miles this way, 15 this way, 15. It was a perfect square, 15 miles on each side. It was surrounded by a brick wall. This wall was 87 feet thick. And it was 350 feet high. Okay, now we've, we've been talking a lot about Power-changing hands. We're going from Nebuchadnezzar, King, or Babylon, to Persia. Persia had to take this city. Who wants to be the one to take this city? Okay, now we're going to learn in just a second. So you, so you have this wall right here, right? This is wall <laughs> number one. All right, so this wall surrounded the city and then inside this wall you had a second wall similar to it not quite as big but but massive and this was a a highway an avenue a massive avenue that ran around the city that was patrolled by the military that makes sense so far so, so if, you, if, you did have, if you did have the military to be able to fight this city, once you got through the first wall, <laughs> and we hadn't even got, we're not even done yet, because there was stuff outside as well. And, and so we got to get to that part. The, the protection wasn't just the wall and then the internal wall. There was also, I mean, I'm going to read it to you, but I'll go ahead and tell you, there was a moat outside that could only be crossed by a bridge. So they had drawbridges on different sides of the city that allowed them to get across this moat. And the moat was fed by the Euphrates River. So it's never running out of water. 
So this water, who knows, everybody know what a moat is? Anybody not know what it is? All right, so a moat, you know, oftentimes in, in old days when people lived in castles and things like that, they would build a moat around their castle, which is a huge body of water. And sometimes they'd put crocodiles and things like that in the water. So if someone tried to cross in the water, they had to deal with wild animals. So, so the idea is, if, and, and, this, and, and the river went straight through the city and out the other side. So the river literally perfectly divided the center of the city and separated it equally on two sides. All right, so you have this moat, which is water surrounding the city. All right, so if you want to get into the city, these bridges are drawbridges. That means they raise up and down. So if, if, you're not, if they're not actively using it, it's up, which means you have no way across the water without getting into the water. And then, and then so let's, let's keep reading. You'll see why this is so significant. The walls had 250 towers. All right, so that means on this outer wall, I'm sure there was one at probably each corner. There's a tower here on, on each corner. And then every so often on this wall, 250 of them, there's towers all the way around the city. All right, does that make sense so far? Everybody know what a tower is? A tower is where military would sit and they would watch. So, so now you have 250 towers manned by military personnel watching the water. And if you try to cross that water, you don't come here with permission. You try to cross that water, they're going to bring, they're going to bring men with bow and arrows and they're going to light you up. You're, you're not coming across that water without a challenge. <laughs> a very serious challenge. All right, so th- this is the city so far, and we're not even on the inside yet. There was a large moat around the outside of the walls. It was fed by the river Euphrates and had to be crossed by drawbridge. Inside the outer wall was an interior wall of smaller but similar magnitude. So it, it, it was, it's not as big. Did you have a question? Uh, this interior wall is not as big as the outside wall, but it's huge. Even if it was only half the size of the, inside, of the outside wall, that's still massive. I mean, you think of a, if it was half the size, which the, the description of it says it was just not as big, which means it's probably similar in size. But if it was half the size, that means it was about 44 feet thick and 175 feet tall. That's still a massive wall. It's still nothing... It's not like it's still not something you want to come against in these days, you know, when, when you got to bust through a wall to get to people. The city had 25 massive avenues that were 150 feet wide. And this is how they ran. They ran perfectly north to south. They were in perfect alignment 
we'll just put a couple here so you can see or get the idea. Well, I'm not going to draw however many I said. I don't even remember. Each one was 150 feet wide. And I wish they had roads like this in Uganda. All right, so remember, this is, this is water. There's a bridge crossing the water. And then these are all highways. Or what they called avenues. Each one is 150 feet wide, which means they're massive. Uh, I mean, the modern roads are not 150 feet wide. I don't even think they're 100 feet wide. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know their exact dimensions, but um, that those are huge. They ran north to south, and they had perfect intersections by the same number crossing east to west. These intersections created 676 great squares. All right, so each one of these, these areas became a great square all, all the way through the city, every one of them, where there were houses, parks, businesses, but every one of them was grand and beautiful. There was no bad side of town. <laughs> There's no slums. It's just, just as beautiful and incredible as you can imagine. Um, the city gates were made of brass. All right, so they had these gates. First, they have these, where the water is here, they have these massive brass gates here and here. And uh, they had some other places around the city. Uh, probably here also and here also. And uh, the description describes others of them uh, off these avenues around the city. They were made of brass. And so when you would open and close them, they're made of brass and they're covered in the design on them were leaves. And so they had several leaves carved into the brass. So when you would open and close them, the sun would hit it and it would look like Leaves of fire. It would just be sparkling in the sunlight. It, it was an incredible sight to see. Now remember this. Those gates with designs on them of leaves or leaves. That's going to come up again later. The city gates are made of brass. They sparkled brilliantly in the sun as they were open or closed. The city was equally divided by the river Euphrates. So it ran right through the center like that, and it was equally divided on each side. All right. The banks of the river were walled and confined with brass gates. So the river, you didn't go down here and find a muddy riverbed. They, they built a wall inside on each side of the river. And, and then, of course, it had, they had gates along the way. At a central avenue, a beautiful bridge crossed the river. So we have that here. That's this guy here. Now listen to this. Uh, 
city was equal. The banks of the river were walled. At a central avenue, a beautiful bridge crossed the river. At each end of the bridge was a beautiful palace. All right, so right here you had a, a beautiful palace, and right here you had a beautiful palace across each other, facing each other across this bridge. Right Now, when they say a beautiful palace in Babylon, it was unbelievable. It wasn't a nice house. It was incredible. Every, every fancy and, and expensive thing you can think of, that's, that's what it was. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, these palaces were accessible by crossing the bridge, <laughs> or they built an underground tunnel that went through the river. So you can either go across the bridge, or you can go down and go under a tunnel that takes you through the river to get to each, each one of these palaces. Now this is, again, you got to remember this is, this is in the day of Nebuchadnezzar. This is not some modern Dubai, you know, <laughs> incredible building that's being made. This is, this is, this is an incredible feat. The underground tunnel that went through the river connecting the palaces. Now listen to this. At different locations within the underground tunnel, there were grand banquet, banquet rooms made entirely of brass. So as you're walking along the tunnel, tunnel, they built a room off to the side here and off to the side here and maybe here and maybe there's one here and one here. And so if you want to have a party... Like the one Belshazzar, Belshazzar has, you can go down and have it in a, bra- a brazen room under the Euphrates River. Near one of these palaces stood eight towers. Each one was 75 feet high, and they were stacked one on top of the other. So if we just pick a spot, we'll say right here, they had a grand courtyard. And there's a tower right there. This tower consisted of eight towers built on top of each other, each one 75 feet high. Each stood one upon another. They had, they had external winding staircases. I wouldn't walk down that staircase. I'm not going up it. And don't you want to see the top? No. Get an elevator. <laughs> I'm not walking up that. It's insane. No, they're not done yet, though. That's not enough. They had external staircases that led to a chapel. The total height of the towers and the chapel. All right, so you have eight towers stacked on top of each other and then a chapel on top of the towers. So Nebuchadnezzar said he took the vessels of God to the house of his God. It's a good chance that's, that might be where it was at. This chapel was a, was a place where they would go and worship their gods. And so you got to go up a flight of stairs that went up eight towers, 75 feet high. And then the, the, the chapel, which was 60 feet tall, on top of the towers for a combined height of 660 feet. You walk up those stairs if you want to. Let me know how it goes when you get back. (laughs) I'm not going. (laughs) 
600 feet in the air? Uh-uh. Not if my feet's not on the ground. This chapel was apparently one of the, one of the this, this chapel was apparently one of the houses of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. One image in this chapel was made of pure gold and stood 45 feet high. Inside the chapel, on top of the towers, <laughs> 660 feet in the air. Are you, are you getting the idea of how incredible this city was? And can you imagine maybe Nebuchadnezzar's in one of these palaces? And he's looking out over the city one day and says, man, look what I've done. And God says, no, <laughs> no, look what I have done. I just let you be a part of it. Now go eat grass. <laughs> Babylon was also known for its hanging gardens. This is, I mean, this is insane when you hear this. Um, These gardens were, (laughs) they were 400 feet square. I was going to draw it, but I can't draw it for you. It wouldn't help. They're 400 feet square and raised on terraces one above another until they reached the height of 350 feet into the air. So you just keep these terraces, they were sort of overlapping each other and just kept climbing up and up and up till they went up to 450 feet in the air. And it was known as the hanging gardens. But the top of each terrace, this is how they made them. This is, try to picture this in your mind. This is, this is what it's made of. The top of each terrace was covered with large stone slabs, then a bed of rushes, a thick layer of asphalt, two courses of of brick cemented together, and then lead to prevent leakage. So they're, they're literally creating a massive platform, the bottom of which is, is rock, then they fill it with rushes, which is like, um, it's kind of like what you use on the huts to keep the rain out. When you, the reeds or whatever you put on top of uh, some of the older houses to keep rain and stuff like that out. Rushes is just something you use. It's a plant that you can use to help seal something, to keep water out, to, to kind of... Or another example would be in some of the village churches, they put dung on the floor to, to, to make a, a solid, hard floor, and then every couple of years they do it again. So it's that, that's the idea. That's, that's the rushes. Then it was covered in asphalt, Then there's two courses of brick with cement, and then they would take lead and cover the whole thing in lead. Then they would fill it. So they're creating a kind of a a, a wall that, you know, that that, I don't know how tall it was. There's no, I didn't see any numbers on how tall this wall was. It's made out of all this stuff. Then they would fill that with earth, and they planted flowers, shrubs, and massive trees. And they did that over and over, climbing up to a height of 350 feet. So from a distance, it looked like a forest-covered mountain. That's what you would think if you saw it. Till you got there and realized it's a man-made structure that is a hanging garden. Each garden overlapped the other. So as you went higher and higher, 
I mean, you get to the top and you'd be able to look over and look down 350 feet over the edge of one of the... If you're not careful, I mean, if they didn't keep it groomed, you might just be walking in the forest and walk right off the edge and that, that wouldn't go well. So um, they probably had good insurance. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the insurance. <laughs> it was filled with earth and flowers, shrubs, and even large trees were planted. From a distance, they appeared to be forest-covered mountains. These gardens were built by Nebuchadnezzar to please his wife, Amiatus. That's, that's how you pronounce it. I'm sure that's correct. Who came from the mountains of the regions of Media. So she's from the mountains. Babylon has no mountains. So Nebuchadnezzar literally built her a mountain. <laughs> The plains of the Euphrates River in Babylon had no mountains. Um, Look at Isaiah 13. Now, now think about this. Now, listen, if you think about what we just read, if you think about what I just how I just described this city to you. And then. In light of what we're about to read, should I just wait for everybody to finish? Or I understand. I'm about to add to it. All right, if you think about everything I just described to you, and then we read what God says about this city, Isaiah 13, verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. The beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> like you, you can be as grand and beautiful as you want. I mean, God said, this place is excellent. It is the glory of kingdoms. You, you name one city that has ever looked like this since. You can go to New York City. It's interesting, but it's a dump. You go to Los Angeles, you're probably going to get robbed or killed. Um, You go to Dubai, Dubai is completely safe, but it's not like this. Dubai has some interesting things for you to see. I mean, it's I've, I've been there. I've been to the island of the Palms. They literally built an island in the ocean that looks like a palm tree. Now, they spend a fortune trying to keep it there because the ocean won't let it stay. <laughs> you, can't just make a ocean, you can't just make an island in the ocean and expect that the ocean's going to let you keep it there. The ocean's going to wash it away. And so they spend a fortune on all this technology and stone and all these things to keep a barrier around it to try and keep it there. And the richest of the rich live there. Did you imagine that? Tomorrow your house might be washed away, but you spent $5 million on it. That's just stupid to me. I don't understand why you do something so dumb. But they're also trying to build the island of the world. So they, they literally want to build a replica of the globe as an island in, in the ocean. They've been trying to do it for 15 or 20 years, and they failed so far because it's just it's a Nebuchadnezzar-type project, and you don't have Nebuchadnezzar money and power. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar could say, you're going to build it or I'll kill you all. (laughs) Um, Dubai can't do that. So 
No matter how grand or how special or how wonderful or how magnificent you think you are, when you turn against God, he's going to tear it down. Look, I, could, I can say objectively, not because I'm an American. I can say objectively, I can give you numerous reasons why America is potentially the greatest country that has ever existed on the earth. And it's about to be thrown away. It's about to be destroyed. It's about to be gone. There, there is, if you turn against God, God is going to turn against you. God is going to win every time. There's no way around it. So all, the, all these people, all these grand, grandiose, rich, famous, powerful, all these people that don't need God, one day they're going to face that God. And they might face the consequences of their actions before they face that God. And they will not win. It will not go well. This city, do you know how, do you know how the Persians took this city? I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to tell you. All right, now, who, who wants to go against this moat? Anybody? No. Okay, if you get past the moat, then you're going to go against this wall. Who wants to do that? <laughs> okay, let's say you got past both of those, which is not going to happen. You're not going to do that. There was not a military in existence. You know, when, when Belshazzar is having this party... You know who's outside, camped out around his, his wall, besieging his wall? The Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar is so confident, you're not getting through all this. He's out here having a party. In fact, the entire city was drunken and involved in Perverse forms of fornication because it was a pagan holiday. The whole city. So the military is not patrolling the wall, which they're supposed to be doing always. If, if I'm the king, I don't care if it's a holiday or not. I don't celebrate holidays as it is. You're definitely not celebrating a holiday if you're supposed to be on my wall protecting my city. It's not happening. They're all drunk and, and out of commission. All of them. Because they all knew you're not getting past this and you're not getting past this. And if you do, you're still not getting past this. But by the time you get here, we're going to be awake and know something's wrong and can get the military together. So you know what Cyrus and Darius did? Does anybody know? They came back here. And they dug a trench that led to a lake. And it diverted the Euphrates River. And they walked right in under the gate. Nobody even knew. They literally just walked right under the gate into the city. We're here. <laughs> and they took the greatest city that ever existed. They took the most fortified city that ever existed. And they didn't have to touch the walls. They just walked right in. 
And because everybody was drunken and involved in whatever they were involved in, nobody even knew till it was way too late. Belshazzar's feast. Look at Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, the word that the Lord spake against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard, publish and conceal not, say, Babylon is taken, Baal is confounded, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. Nebuchadnezzar is believed to have died around one year after his time as an ox in Daniel chapter 4. His son, evil Merodach, how's this for a name? Now, if one of you name your kids this, we're going to have to talk. Evil Merodach. Now, in the Bible, they don't use the hyphen. It's just one word. But historically, that's how they spell his name. Now, I don't know that the word evil there actually means evil the way we use it in the English language. I think it's just a coincidence that that's the first part of his name. Now, there might be some connection. There usually is at least a loose connection. But um, that'd be some name to have. His son took his place. And immediately, this is interesting, he immediately liberated Jehoiakim from prison and fed him from his own table. Everybody remember Jehoiakim? He's still alive at this point. He's been in prison this whole time. And he just freed him from prison and now he's eating from the king's table. Look at 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30. And it came to pass in the 7 and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. How, how long has that been? 37 years in prison in Babylon. Now, the others were taken captive. Now, think, this is something else to think about. Judah was taken captive and brought to this city and told to settle down, marry build houses, have kids. They got to live in this city. (laughs) Well, he's in prison the whole time. (laughs) So it's just a a difference in the the setup for the previous king who rebelled against him. All right, back to verse 27. And it came to pass in the the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month on the seven and twentieth day of the month, that evil evil Merodach, King of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, out of prison. Now, normally that's not a good thing. Usually if your head is lifted up, (laughs) it was detached from your body. (laughs) But in this case, he's being removed from prison. Uh, Verse 28, and he spake kindly to him and set his throne above the throne. Now, listen to this. Above the throne of the kings. That's that's why I think when it comes to these, you know, these kings. Now, this is this is these are descendants of Nebuchadnezzar, 
But it's a similar idea because Nebuchadnezzar had a massive um, kingdom as well. But he's, he's the head king. He's in charge. He is sole monarch. What he says goes. But then he had other kings ruling and reigning under him. And so he's replaced by him. And it looks like the same setup. And Jehoiakim is, is counted among these lower level kings. Um, at least it seems reasonable, reasonable to me. Um, where was I? Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the prison, and he spake kindly. Verse 29, and changed his prison garments, and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of, of the king, a daily rate for every day, all his days. That, um, that exact same note is re- repeated in Jeremiah 52, verses 31 through 34. It says the exact same thing, same way. Evil Merodach uh, did not reign for long. He was killed a few years later, and then the kingdom went through a few different kings, each of whom was beaten or killed and removed from power. And this is, this is a constant problem throughout history. Um, now, I'm not suggesting this is going to happen in Uganda, but everybody's waiting to see what happens after Museveni. I mean... He's going to stick around as long as he can, but he's, got to, he's going to go eventually. Either death's going to take him or, you know, I mean, eventually he's going to be gone. But what happens in this country, Museveni, whether people like him or not, they respect him. They don't try him. He's a strong man. He's the reason the country remains secure. They fear him. There are lots of people around this country, around Congo, Sudan, all over, the, all, over the, all over Africa who would love to come and take this country for themselves. Well, they're not going to do it with him here. They're not going to try him. What happens when he leaves? Who takes over? Is it going to be a succession of coup d'etats and you know, rebel groups taking the country and, and constant battle for power? Or can someone come in who can, who can demonstrate the same level of respect that people have for Museveni? And, and again, it's not, a, it's not whether you like him or not, but people respect him and they don't try him. And if they do try, how quickly does it get put down? <laughs> Every group that's tried to uh, attack this country or internal groups who tried to raise up against the federal government, they get, they get put down in six hours. It's over. All right, now, that, that keeps the country somewhat secure. That lets rebel groups know, yeah, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) Museveni is not going to let us come and take part of his country or any of his country. So you have Nebuchadnezzar, who is so powerful, people fear him. But as soon as he's gone, there's nobody capable of taking his place. Evil Merodach, he gets taken out. They kill him. They they literally go in and and, and kill him and and just walk in and take the kingdom, his own family. And then the next king, who I believe was, if I remember correctly, was the guy who killed Evil Merodach. They take him, they beat him, kill him, and the guy who, who killed him, he takes the kingdom. <laughs> well, then a third king does the same thing, and he happens to be the father of Belshazzar and brings us to where we are now. This is what happens when 
someone's not ready and capable to to take the next position of power and is able to immediately stand in and let everybody know everything's in order. Don't test me. And if you don't have someone who's capable of doing that, you're going to have constant trouble. And so we hope not here or anywhere in East Africa, because if it happens anywhere else in East Africa, it's going to flood into this area. You don't want that. You want stability. You want quiet. You want peace. You want someone who will let you worship God the way you're supposed to, according to the word of God, and will maintain relative safety. All right. So this is how Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar came to reign in Babylon. Look at um, Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah 27, verses 6 through 7. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations, now listen to this, shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of, of, the, of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. That's very interesting. As the Lord said, I'm giving it to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's going to last until his son's son. Belshazzar was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was the last king of the, of the Babylonian Empire before Persia took it. At the time of this feast of the lords or to the lords, Nabonidus was on military expeditions. Historically, we know that he was gone. They, they say that he was out fighting wars and, and taking care of things. Now, Belshazzar was left to defend the city. And the city is encamped by the Persians. At this time, they're under siege. But they had so many resources and so much security, they thought, let's get drunk. <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, a lot can go wrong very quickly. And it did very quickly. And, and all it takes, no matter how great a job you think you've, you've done, and undoubtedly, this, was a, this is a well-defended city. And honestly, if, if the military was not drunk and they were occupying one of these 250 towers on top of the wall, they still could have defended the city. They could have noticed, hey, the water's gone and people are walking down the, the riverbed. Sound the alarm. But they were not. And all it took was one thought from, from, an, from, a, from a creative mind who wanted to get into this city. And he thought, wonder what's under that water. <laughs> Let's drain the river and see. Oh, it turns out there's nothing under that water. Let's just walk right in. <laughs> And, and so one little hole in their defense and a lack of discipline, a lack of properly. You think Nebuchadnezzar would let those. You think he would have let his soldiers go get drunk and fall around the city in, in fornication and stupidity? Not a chance. They'd be dead. He'd kill them. You don't do that. You don't let down your defenses. That, it's a beautiful picture of, of what the Bible says. Watch. Walk circumspectly. And the moment you think you, you, I've done so well, I can take a break. 
you're going to fall. You can't get to the point to where you think you've got, you're doing so good that, that you're so godly, you can't fall. You're going to fall. Don't do that. Adrian Rogers used to say, your greatest falls come right after your greatest victories. You start thinking, man, look what I've done. You know, so right now in our church, we're having a great time. It seems like every time somebody goes out and preaches the gospel, 35 people get saved and five of them come get baptized. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's going really well. So you would have the potential to think, hey, we're doing so good. You know, it's all right. I can take a break. Don't do that. Because as soon as you, you decide to take a break, as soon as you back off, as soon as you stop watching and praying, as soon as you stop walking circumspectly, that's when, that's when something's going to hit you. And you're not going to be prepared. And you're going to be looking at it like, how did that get through? Well, you weren't paying attention. So it just walked right through. <laughs> Belshazzar was often in charge of the city of Babylon. It is said that Belshazzar's feast was so grand that, that no other feast of its equal has ever been recorded. This party they're having was so elaborate, no one has ever done it again. No one has ever produced anything on its magnitude again. Now you think about the parties that Hollywood has and the parties that they have in Dubai and the parties they have in all these magnificent places all around the world, and none of them have topped what Belshazzar did that night. Now, if one of these devils who goes to these parties is listening to this, that's not a challenge. <laughs> I'm not trying to encourage you to go put on a party of this magnitude as it might end the same way. I would suggest giving up the partying, which is fine for me. I don't care. I'm not a socialite. I don't need to be out and about seeing people and talking to people and being all in people's faces. I don't, I don't, I don't need any of that. I like to be with my family. I mean, you know, guys, they're like, well, I just, you know, I need a guy's night out. Why? That's weird. You have a wife at home that you claim you love. You have children you claim you love, and you want to go hang out with a bunch of guys? That's strange to me. I would rather be home with my family or out doing something productive. People, they, you know, my wife and I, we used to, when we were home, we would say, you know, so-and-so didn't invite us over to their get-together, whatever it is. And we'd be, you know, a little upset. Like, I mean, why didn't they invite us? Well, then they'd invite us. And we're like, I have stuff to do. I don't have time to go to this. And then we're mad that we got invited. But then we didn't get invited. And we're like, why didn't they invite us? You know, then we got to the point where, please don't invite us. <laughs> we have stuff to do. It's important. I like my wife. I love my wife. I enjoy my family. I would rather not be out doing whatever it is. You, you just want to go sit around and talk and do nothing. And I don't have time for that. Or if I'm going to do that, it's going to be at home with people I like. I'm not saying I don't like you. I'm just suggesting that I like my family better. <laughs> I don't have time for any of this stuff. So you get caught up in, Lester Roloff used to say, you can't go to every dog fight in town and then feed your church on Sunday morning. You have things to do. Remember, all semester I've been beating into your heads. Be disciplined. Be focused. Be productive. 
sitting around doing nothing, talking to people about the weather is not being productive. You can call it ministry. You do whatever you want. That's up to you. And, and maybe it's okay to have a little more social time than I would. Maybe. Uh, but I disagree. <laughs> Get busy. Be productive. Do something with the, with the time that you have left. You should be living like it's an emergency. Like whatever it is the Lord has given you to accomplish, it needs to be done before you die. When are you going to die? Maybe in the next five minutes. Have you accomplished what the Lord has given you to accomplish? All right, if you haven't, you got a serious time crunch on your hands. So just be faithful. Parties. Like, I, I could care less about parties. Churches, like, well, we want to have a party and bring people in. If you, if you need a party to bring people in, you need a party to keep people in. If Jesus Christ and the Word of God doesn't bring them in, it's not who you want. People would call a church and they would say, you know, what do you have there for my family? Nothing. Go away. <laughs> Why can't you call and say, do you have somewhere that my family and I can serve God? Yes, you come. (laughs) We will find somewhere for you to serve God. We will find a way for you to help. But everybody thinks a church exists to provide some level of entertainment for their toddler, for their teenager, for their wife, for their husband, for their elderly parents. Like you got to have all this, this massive structure of social time in order for people to feel comfortable to come to a church. I don't have time for that. And if that's what it takes to get you here, it's going to take that to keep you here. And that definitely isn't going to happen. And so if you want to serve God, go to a godly church and don't say, what do you have here for me? You go to a godly church and say, where can me and my family fit in and help you? And so if if your life is about being a social butterfly, (laughs) God bless you, but not me. The feast, though it detailed, though it detailed the wealth of Babylon, it, it demonstrated the wealth of Babylon, also marked its downfall. The feast was held the night that the head of gold would be replaced by the chest and arms of silver. It took place 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. The atmosphere of this feast was that of rebellion and defiance. The armies of the Medes and Persians were marching against Babylon and even had Babylon besieged. But Belshazzar felt safe within the confines of that moat and those great walls. Babylonian soldiers had every advantage and the city was well stocked for several years. They could feed people and if they didn't have enough food, they had all these grand squares. You can turn them all into farming land immediately. They got the river, you got plenty of water. They had everything they needed to outlast Persia because they were confident they were not coming in. And they had everything they needed to fight Persia if they did come in. So let's go get drunk. (laughs) That's a stupid idea.
They had every advantage. In the face of their enemies, Belshazzar held a rebellious feast with excessive licentiousness, drunkenness, and idolatry. This feast that encompassed the entire city was meant to show Persia, we don't care about you. We're in here living it up, having a great time. You just go out there and cook some food on your little campfire. Look at my brass walls and, and, and golden vessels and all the wonderful things we're in here. We're in having a party. We don't care about you out there. Well, that was a faithful, that was a terrible mistake. In his defiant mood, I'll read this and we'll take a break. In his defiant mood, Belshazzar chose to rebel against the Medes and the Persians and also against God. It wasn't enough to just go against his enemies. He had to say, you know what, we'll defy God also. The vessels of God were brought in, distributed amongst the drunken, and used to further defile themselves. This got God's attention, and it sealed Babylon's fate. Furthermore, in the Bible, wine and strong drink always end in trouble. You can't find one verse that says one positive thing about alcohol. Every time it's a viper that is going to bite you and it's going to hurt you every single time. Alcohol will hurt you and everyone you love. Alcohol is the number one killer worldwide for people between the ages of 15 and 25. If somebody aged 15 to 25, just about anywhere in the world dies there's an extremely high chance alcohol was somehow related. Alcohol destroys families, finances, lives, and your body. It is destructive. It will consume you. It will kill you. Alcohol is a poison. So the response you have, the reason it damages your liver is because your liver thinks that you just ingested poison and it's trying to get it out. And that's what people call a good time. Let's go have... People used to say to us all the time, you don't drink? No. How do you have fun? Because drinking alcohol is the only thing you can do to have fun? Are you retarded? Your brain is broken. What is fun about puking? Because you ingested so much poison. What's fun about waking up and saying, what did I do last night? I don't know, but you better find out. Before somebody important finds out and you've got to go fit, you got to do a lot of damage control. Do you, do you know, ladies, do you know why guys give you alcohol? To get you drunk. Do you know why they want you drunk? Because it's easier to have their way with you. That's the purpose. They're not trying to be nice guys. Let me buy you a drink. And what that means is I hope to get you drunk enough to slip you out of here. They're not being a nice guy. There's nothing nice. If someone comes and says, can I buy you an alcoholic drink? You should know that that guy's a dirt bag who's trying to abuse your body and get away from him. Guys, you want a drink? Well, I hope you don't want a family. I hope you don't want finances. I hope you don't ever want to be in a place of leadership. I hope you don't want to live long. It's destructive. It will kill you. It will hurt you. And it doesn't hurt you alone. 
You don't know how many nights we watched my mother be physically abused in some of the worst ways you can imagine because a man drunk on alcohol couldn't control himself. Alcohol is destructive. And God warned repeatedly, if you play with it, it's going to bite you. And it plays for keeps. So I hope you're a quick little night of fun. You know how many people went out to drink alcohol and then drove home after drinking and killed somebody? They end up in prison because they crossed the line and and killed somebody. But they get to live in a prison cell the rest of their life. So alcohol is high-grade stupidity. And I would encourage you to stay away from it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.